particularly in a cost of living crisis, for communities to be able to grow their own food is a very obvious way of making cheaper food. It always frustrates me when people go, oh, veganism's middle class, it's expensive. Yes, it often can be. If you go to a vegan restaurant, it outrages me too. So you often end up paying a lot more than if you didn't go to a vegan restaurant. And nothing bothers me more than when you go in a coffee shop and you get charged extra for oat milk or soy milk. So all of those things need to change. But also at the root cause of it, vegetables, healthy plant-based food can actually be a lot cheaper way of making a meal than the alternatives. And I think it's important that those differences are understood. Welcome back to another enlightening episode on the Plant-Based News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. In this episode, we're joined by a special guest, Zach Polanski, a politician and a passionate advocate for environmental and social justice. Zach's journey in politics is driven by a deep commitment to creating a sustainable and equitable world, making him a perfect fit for our conversation on the intersections of policy, veganism, and environmental activism. Zach brings to the table a wealth of knowledge and experience from his work in politics, particularly in advocating for progressive changes in environmental policies and promoting plant-based living as a means to combat climate change. His insights offer a unique perspective on how political action and vegan activism can intertwine to bring about significant societal change. In this episode, we delve into the challenges and opportunities for advocating for plant-based living within the political arena. Zach shares his personal journey in politics, his motivations for championing vegan and environmental causes, and his vision for a future where policy and ethics align to support a more sustainable and compassionate society. Whether you are deeply involved in vegan activism, interested in the role of politics in environmentalism, or simply keen to understand how individual actions and policy can work together for a greater cause, this episode promises to be a thought-provoking and inspiring discussion. Join us as we explore the power of political advocacy in shaping a more sustainable and ethical world with Zach Polensky. Let's dive into a conversation that bridges the gaps between vegan activism and political action, illuminating a path towards a more greener and compassionate future. If you like this episode, please don't forget to comment, like and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thanks so much for joining us on the PBN podcast, Zach. Great to sit down with you after all these years and uh, and have this chat. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited for the conversation. Has this government surprised you in any way on its green agenda? It has decarbonised more quickly than most, well, I think, virtually every other developed country. So none of this is true. Um, essentially, I it reject the, the presupposition of the question. They've not decarbonised. What they've done is they've outsourced their carbon emissions. No, so they've true. stopped including shipping. They've stopped including no. landfill. And essentially what we're doing is taking it to places like China and India and pretending that we're perfect by selling off the social housing. That means we're already... Uh, putting too much pressure on an overinflated rental market. So I think these things are all connected. So Zach and I go way back. We've been uh, known each other a long, long time. We haven't had interactions in the recent years, but we've been involved in the plant-based space for quite some time. Before we talk about all the things you've been doing in recent times, as with tradition on my podcast, tell me about your plant-based and vegan story. How did you hear about this lifestyle and uh, where did that all begin for you? Yeah, so for me, um, it wasn't kind of a sudden decision. It was lots of things over periods of years that started to add up. So I was veggie for a long time, entirely for uh, animal rights reasons. The idea of this being a good thing for the planet or the climate or for health just wasn't even on my radar at all. It was just this general idea that I love animals, as I still do. And the idea of, of, of eating them or exploiting them just was something I, I just couldn't countenance. There was this huge gray spot, though, as there are with so many people that I was like, oh, but I love Jaffa cakes and I like cheese. And if you're not killing the animal, then, then that's fine. And it, 
I was really guilty of that cognitive dissonance that you see and hear in lots of people. I think we'll come on to shortly on, on my job now, but I think it's always really important for all of us to counter back to when we didn't know what we don't know so that we never come from places of judgment or expect people to absolutely have the right thing straight away. And also to be humble about that now, to know that there's still things we don't know now. And there's maybe still things we do in our life that we'll look back on and go, I can't believe I used to do that or eat that or say that. So I think those things are always important. About, I think, 10 to 15 years ago, I was asked if I would present a documentary about vegetarianism and veganism for a student project. I was an actor at the time and I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do that, sure. And I remember them sending me through lots of questions. And then they asked me to go chat to some vegan influencers, vegan activists, people who've been involved in a long time. And I just remember asking some of the questions and then pausing and thinking, well, I'm not going to ask that one because I know the answer to it. Another question. And then the, the person giving such a good answer that I thought, oh, I really like I, if I look through my notes, I hope I've got the answer to respond to that. And I just didn't have the answer. And I think everything just clicked in that anyone who truly cares about animals and at that point, it started to creep in that if you want to protect the planet, you want to make sure we're reducing emissions, that you want to make sure we're looking at compassionate, kind lifestyles, then that has to include moving towards plant-based food. Now, there's often a lot of um, difference. In fact, you're called plant-based news. I would call myself a vegan out of the political space. I'm absolutely a vegan and I, I have no shyness about that whatsoever. I also think that vegan is a particular term that isn't necessarily helpful in political spaces, because actually veganism comes with a whole load of connections about moral and ethical obligations, which I'm entirely signed up to. So this isn't me squeezing out of them. But I think when we're talking about decisions that politicians make or councils make, I think what we want to talk about is on the most granular details of what needs to change. And I think there it's helpful to talk about plant-based food. And I'm, I'm sure we'll interrogate and explore that a little bit, but I just wanted to be upfront about what I see as the difference in the terminology. Yeah, thank you for that, Zach. It's really important for people to understand the difference between what this plant-based and what does vegan mean. You know, vegan is a, is a philosophy. It's something that I personally live by. It's, um, it's a lifestyle where we believe that animals should be excluded from every form of human society, fashion, food, transport, entertainment, and that we would see a, a completely animal-free kind of human system. That doesn't mean that we can't care for animals and love them and, and be their caretakers, because in the, in the instances of cats and dogs, which there are millions of these creatures in the world today, many of them do require human guardianship. And we often um, talk about pets as rather than calling them pets, we call them companion animals. So it's about reframing our relationship with animals. And of course, you know, you pointed out that plant-based news is plant-based news, not vegan news. Our, our focus really is to create like a broad church of conversation. A veganism is obviously prevalent within what we do, but we are very much like you in the political spaces, want to act a little bit like, you know, a welcoming broad church in that sense, where we want people to step into the conversation with us without feeling threatened by the sign on the door. Because <laughs> the sign on the door says veganism. A lot of people are like, I'm not vegan, I'm not going in there. Whereas with plant-based, a lot of people have heard of plant-based food, plant-based nutrition, and they are curious, uh, more likely to sort of step in. And then we can sort of educate and inform them on, on some of the key issues that we do. But I think it is important for people to understand the difference because there are many people who call themselves vegan, but then, you know, they might still ride horses or they might occasionally, you know, do things that don't aren't in alignment. And I do personally believe that veganism exists and has a moral baseline for a reason. It's about protecting a belief system and it's actually also protected as a belief system as a as a as an identity in the uk so you cannot be discriminated against so there anyone listening if you have ever been discriminated against for your veganism and you do live in the uk you are you know you're protected for that for that belief but let's kind of zoom out a bit and talk about the food system 
and the importance of it because in, the, in our country, we have 66 million people, well, no, 68 million, I think it is now, living in the UK. And most of our farmlands go to farming animals, and that is having catastrophic effect on our country. The UK is one of the most nature-deprived countries in the world. That has got to change, and there are different ways that we can we can make that change. But with regards to the food system, like how is how important is it to you that we we start to push the UK towards a more plant focused food system or a fully plant based food system? It's vital. Um, and by the way, I think you just articulated uh, the difference between ve- veganism and plant based really really well, and I'd endorse everything you just said. If I, if I zoom out a little bit. Uh, when people think about the Green Party, they often think we care about polar bears and the planet. And, and that's true. I, I do care about polar bears and the planet a lot. But what they don't necessarily know is how we have a broad range of policy platforms across every issue. So whether that's policing, renting, transport. And what I often say, and it's almost the motto at the heart of all of my work, is there's no environmental justice without racial, social and economic justice too. And as I just said at our party conference in my speech last week, that also has to include animal justice. Ultimately, none of us are free until we're all free. And all of these think these things intersect. And it's important we don't have these conversations in silos. And the reason why I'm saying this is because we often talk about the climate crisis. And I think that's something that lots of people know about. What is talked about much less is the nature crisis and also the risk of ecological collapse. And a lot of these ecological issues happen because of agriculture. Animal agriculture and kind of, you know, when you think of England in particular and you think of those beautiful fields that, you know, are all one colour and you have cows, sheep, etc. grazing on them. Uh, yes, they are beautiful. I'm, I'm not going to deny that. But actually, it is terrible for biodiversity because you have these monocultures where it just completely lacks any kind of differentiation of species, nothing is left to wild and grow, and it becomes this very artificial environment that has essentially been created by people to kill these animals and and to eat these animals, and even where they're not being eaten, to exploit them. So I think, first of all, animal agriculture is having a huge issue on the nature and ecological collapse. But we also know when we look at things like methane and carbon emissions, the emissions that are created through the animal agriculture, I, I say industry, and I use that word, carefully are massively destructive to our planet and this isn't a case of you can choose whether you like it or not and then work out what to do carrying on as we are is completely incompatible with a planet that is livable on and which we have a future so changes clearly need to happen and it's at the heart of um, a green party platform that ultimately we need to be moving towards more plant-based options and plant-based food this cannot continue to happen this is urgent If the climate crisis wasn't dire enough, the pandemic isn't going away. Food and fuel prices are rocketing and people are dreading their next bill. All of these crises overlap, which means the pressure on some people is reaching breaking point. And to make matters worse, there's an integrity crisis at the heart of government. They don't have any answers. They don't even care. They're in it for themselves and they're not even bothered that you know that. The Green Party do have answers and we do care. There's no environmental justice without social, racial and economic justice too. And we're the only party that truly gets that. So it's vital that our ideas and values are heard in Parliament and by the public. And then I think the other thing as well is around our health. We know we have an obesity crisis. We also have a health crisis of the National Health Service. And we know there's lots of data that uh, people who are excessively eating red meat, for instance, this can have serious effects on your health and ultimately while I don't believe in you know, some sort of nanny state where people are told exactly what to eat and when to eat it, I do believe that we have a national health service. We all need to take a systemic responsibility towards our planet's health and our people's health. 
And politicians need to be honest about these conversations backed by experts and science. It always needs to be backed by experts and science rather than just spouting opinion. But I think the expertise in science is pretty clear that, again, we need a transition away from the way that agriculture is being done towards a more plant-based model. Mm, absolutely. I mean, we all know about, well, not we all know because I feel like it was buried, but the National Food Strategy, an independent review, which was put together by um, the amazing Henry Dumbleby, was an independent study and review of the food system in the UK and a review for the government suggested that we need to reduce our meat consumption by 30%. And it talked directly about how animal agriculture is affecting our country. Why is it that our Prime Minister and our Environmental Secretary stood up in the, at the Tory party conference and, and have, have directly suggested they will not be telling anyone to eat less meat? Uh, our, our Prime Minister said it, Environmental Secretary said it, many other politicians continue to, to, to push this message despite the science and the data and these independent studies saying we need to dramatically reduce our meat consumption if we're going to meet our zero carbon, our net zero targets. What's going on here? Is this industry collusion? Why are politicians seemingly having their heads in the sand on this matter? Yeah, so there's there's two things I think that are going on here primarily. And one of them I have more sympathy for, one of them I have no sympathy for whatsoever. So I'll start with where I'm more sympathetic. When you look at American politics, I think it's quite clear to, to people who don't live in America that people being able to walk around with guns is absolute madness. And because we don't have a culture of gun ownership, Fortunately, I think it's pretty easy. You won't find many politicians in the UK, maybe aside from I've never heard Nigel Farage say this, but I can imagine him saying it, that people are entitled to defend themselves or you know, we have a right to bear arms. All of these arguments are just not embedded in our culture. Arguments that absolutely are embedded in our culture, though, are arguments around uh, people's freedom to drive and own a car. I won't go into that certain rabbit hole right now, but obviously within green politics, that's something I'm often talking about, is the freedom to not own a car, the freedom to be able to get on public transport, or to walk or cycle, or to be able to get about, and the freedom away from car dependency. So that's one that we've been dealing with for quite a long time, and I feel like we've cracked. The one I think we've not cracked, though, is food. Food is a highly emotive subject. We are what we eat. And I think people are very sensitive to the idea of being told what to do, you know, all my green politics revolves around telling people this is not your individual responsibility. This is about systemic change. And the reason why I say that is because if it becomes about people's individual responsibility, that lets government and big business off. And ultimately, it shifts responsibility to the individual. And that's just a way of distracting from the big changes that we need to make. Can I ask on that point, though, because people, many people have said this to me, surely big business is influenced by the consumer, what people buy and consume en masse changes business so if consumer on mass make meaningful changes with regards to what they're consuming behavioral change on a mass scale will affect business business will pivot accordingly surely yeah without a doubt so this is not a binary what what i was about to say because i get asked about this in interviews from people who are a lot less nice than yourself the right wing <laughs> kind of journalists who go are you vegan do you drive do you fly and actually i don't fly i don't drive and i'm vegan and so in terms of individual responsibility i have the privilege both in terms of the wealth, the time, I guess, access to education and resources and access to these things to be able to make those choices. So I would, you know, if someone is asking me, if all things being equal, should they make these choices? Absolutely, without a doubt, take individual responsibility. And also, this is a really effective way to get the changes you've just outlined. Where you can, you should. Yeah, That's a really good phrase, where you can, you should. I think what's not often known is this idea of carbon footprint. We often hear the media talk about what is your carbon footprint? How can you reduce it? The phrase carbon footprint was created in the 90s and noughties by British Petroleum BP. 
as a way of shifting away from systemic change to individual responsibility. Their argument always was, you know, if people cared about this enough, then they would be making changes and they'd be demanding governments make change. But of course, governments and oppositions often look around at the people and go, well, if they really cared about this, they'd be demanding change would be ha- you know, happening and they'd stop voting for us if we weren't doing it. So we're in this ridiculous, vicious, vicious circle around individual responsibility and system change. And you're absolutely right with your question. It has to be both. Those who can should, and we should take individual responsibility. But if as many people as could took individual responsibility, I'm still not convinced the shifts would happen at the same rate that we need them to if actually big business and governments started to mandate this, both with carrots in terms of you know literal carrots in terms of vegetables, but also metaphorical carrots in terms of incent- incentives and tax subsidies for people who are doing the right thing. And of course, sanctions for those who aren't. And also with a stick, which, which is those sanctions there. So that's one part of the puzzle that I have more sympathy for, which is politicians being nervous about telling people what to do. Now, that's not me saying that we shouldn't. We live in a world where, yes, politicians don't want to tell people what to do and we don't want to, quote, nanny state. But where does leadership come in? Where do the people look to the government for guidance and, and, and you know, a direction? And if, if the government is saying, you're not telling people what to do, but giving people the, the knowledge and then letting them make up their mind, but that just isn't happening. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think you're exactly right. And then that was what I was about to come to. So I have some sympathy for the fear of politicians who are not taking action on this. But ultimately, this is why I have sympathy as opposed to I'm not doing this. We have to show leadership, all of us who have elected uh, positions of responsibility. When people see us as a credible alternative in British politics, they want more Green MPs. A general election is on its way, which means that the decisions the Green Party make right now are what wins us more MPs. Just imagine more Caroline Lucases in Parliament speaking truth to power. This is going to be a massive challenge of organising, fundraising, persuading. And as Deputy Leader, I will keep the party focused on making sure we win those campaigns as our top priority. I'll be travelling the country, supporting local parties, speaking out with marginalised people alongside our liberation groups and championing diverse representation wherever I go. I'm so proud of our party. We've taken huge strides in the last few years. Now, it is time to break through and win. You know, there's this thing about meeting people where they're at and then taking them places. But I think if you do that too much, you become a weather vane and not a signpost. I also think it's important to point to the signs, to point to where we need to go to. And rather than say, this is a done deal, we're going to go there, to still listen to people, to still engage, but ultimately politicians, they are elected to set clear directions of travel, to set intention, and to also present evidence and the arguments. And we've got to get better at presenting those arguments. So I would appeal to politicians and other parties. I'm really proud that the leadership of the Green Party, the three of us and the team, were all vegan. So that leadership is there. We're talking about these things, but ultimately we can't do this alone and we need other people and elected parties to, to move. The second part of this puzzle where I have no kind of truck with politicians is um, again, to refer it back to the climate, we know that ExxonMobil in the 70s knew the effects that oil and gas were having on the planet. In fact, they commissioned research and then they buried that research. We've also seen that with tobacco companies where they did the research, they knew what tobacco was doing to people's health and then they buried it. In fact, they didn't just bury it, they actively paid for misinformation and lies to obfuscate and confuse the public conversation. Merchants of doubt. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. Naomi Klein's done amazing work with this. That's exactly going on with the meat industry. It's not like a, a vague comparison. There are literally meat industry officials whose entire job is to infiltrate politicians by either giving them donations to their political party 
or to their individual campaigns in return for lobbying or access rights. Obviously, I can't give specific examples because I'm not covered legally, but it's pretty clear that this goes on. Yeah, and it cuts to the root of one of the problems at the heart of our politics is how easily politicians can be bought, whether that's direct corruption and bribery or more what I'm talking about here, which is I'm going to fund your campaign and I might not have direct asks, but if you don't do exactly what I want you to do when you're in power, then the funding is quickly going to go. And that's not just the meat industry. We see it with gambling addiction, for instance. And it's not just for conservatives either. We often see this at the heart of the Labour Party and I think points to where I would say some of their policy positions lack courage, leadership or or moral obligation is because of who they're in hock to. So I think there's some very obvious examples of that that go throughout politics. And as I say, I have a little bit of sympathy with politicians that don't have the bravery to stand up and, and show leadership. I say I have sympathy, they should still do it. But what I don't have sympathy for is politicians who are in the pockets of the meat industry. And I think that needs calling out. And it actually, it needs the work, the investigative work to be able to demonstrate that and, and and demonstrate the direct lines. I went to a conference recently organized by VegMed, who are doing amazing work. Uh, these are um, health-based professionals who are looking at plant-based food, particularly in medical settings. But they had a two-day conference where they had an array of speakers on various issues. Um, and there was one man who spoke very powerfully about the work that he'd been doing to essentially dig into the meat industry. He talked about, for instance, there was, I'm trying to remember the exact name of them, but it, was, it wasn't the British Dietary Association, so I shouldn't tar them with that brush, but it was an organization that had a name like that. It sounded like a reasonably innocuous trade body that was there to check standards. But then he looked at all the links of these people with papers they'd commissioned or boards that they sat on directly with the meat and dairy industry. And the links were very obvious. They weren't, you know, seven steps away. They were one step away. We were lied to as a country. That doesn't mean people didn't know what they were voting for. You know, I always worry that those lines sound like you're calling people stupid. I think lots of people did know what they were voting for. But I think even in its own terms of what people thought they were voting for, they thought they were voting for renewed economic success about controlling our borders. I think they wanted to see better infrastructure, better schools, better doctor surgery. People aren't seeing any of that. What they're seeing is a society that is being destroyed at its very core with its infrastructure. They're seeing a society where the rich are getting richer and people who are living in poverty are even poorer. They're seeing a society where um, mothers can't afford to buy nappies, so they're stealing them and then ending up in prison. We're literally criminalizing poverty. Now, not all of that is Brexit. We were on that road anyway. Not all of that is pandemic. We were on that road anyway, but I think these things have all exacerbated it. But I don't think there's a single factor that has been stronger recently than Brexit. And we've seen how much damage that has done to our economy. And I think it's vital that we call that and we, we don't shy away from that. Is that politically convenient? No, it's much more convenient to talk about lots of other things because Brexit is still divisive. But I think no one in public life should shy away from saying David Cameron and Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson more than anyone, lied to us. Let's dive into obviously like the Green Party and how you got involved in that. But I'd love to hear a little bit like how you got into politics, because obviously getting into politics is not for the faint-hearted. There, we had a, had a great session chatting uh, with Georgie Purcell, who's a Green Party MP uh, down in Australia, and um, she's amazing. And we talked a lot about the challenge of being I guess, a more liberal and more kind of progressive person in politics and how you come heavily under fire for your views on animals or civil rights or social justice. But let's go back. Tell us how you got into politics. Uh, what possessed you to do this kind of work? Because it's, yeah, as I said, it's definitely for, not for the faint-hearted. Yeah, just to answer your point very directly, though, as well, I think sometimes being a progressive person in politics is helpful because you know that the right-wing media are going to attack you no matter what you say and no matter what you do. So actually, you're just free to say and do exactly what you want and exactly as you please, because if they're going to attack you anyway, then you might as well just be congruent and authentic. Um, how did I get there? Well, in the time that we knew each other, 
I can't remember if we ever had chats about this, but if you'd asked me about politics back then, I would have known almost nothing. Like when I was much younger, I wouldn't have even been able to tell you who the leader of the opposition was. So lots of people who tell me they're not interested in electoral politics, so they might be highly political, very involved in the animal rights movement, the vegan movement, but just kind of look at party politics and, and see it as a little bit dirty or not for them. I get that. What I'm hoping to make is an argument for why though we all need to get involved. When I was acting, I was doing a lot of theatre acting and community work. And I was doing a specific piece called Theatre of the Oppressed. This came out of the favelas in South America and in Brazil, uh, some of the poorest communities in the 1970s and 80s. I, I wasn't involved then. I wasn't born yet. In the 70s, this guy called Augusto Boal was working with poor, vulnerable communities to help them empower themselves and to find their voice. So to give an example, suppose um, a rogue landlord or a corporate landlord was going to evict people from a village. They would do what they called rehearsing the revolution. So groups of people would get together and they would role play with actors, how they might challenge those in power. And the rest of the audience, they were called spectators, but he would call them spect actors. So they weren't allowed to just watch. At the end of the scene, they would have to get up and they would have to demonstrate different ways things can be done. And then the actors would respond to that. So I was doing a lot of that work around migrant rights, around challenging those in power, around young renters, around challenging a police force that is under protecting and over policing black and minority communities. So I started to do a lot of that, that work, which wasn't party political, but was highly, highly political in terms of activism. And I guess you get to a point where you realize that you can give someone the most effective, authentic voice in the world. Like you can help them amplify that. You can train them in it. You can encourage them to do it. But ultimately, if there are systemic barriers that mean no matter how well they speak, the barrier will still be there. You realize you actually need to get involved with the business of people vote on things and that's what passes. And I'd always say that to people who are involved in direct action. I've been arrested in the past myself, so I have no issue with, with any of that. I think it clearly has a place in the ecosphere of change that needs to happen. But ultimately, you know, we can all get arrested and we can draw attention to it. And I think there's arguments for that. But ultimately, we need people in positions of power to vote the right way. And although direct action influences that, for people who are able to manage it and do it and have the time to do it, we need to get them elected into those positions so they can then make the right decisions so the direct action is no longer necessary. Now, again, it's not an either or because, you know, direct action happens quickly. Party politics happens most of the time slowly. So it's an ingredient and a, and a different recipe of doing these things. Once I got involved with politics more widely, it was actually being vegan and hanging out in vegan spaces. Um, there's a brilliant group on Facebook for LGBT vegans called the Vegas. Lots of other groups I was involved with, like Extinction Rebellion, Animal Rights Movement and Animal Rebellion. I started to learn or hear more about the environmental climate arguments. Uh, this was in like 2016, 2017. And that's when I started to get plugged more into um, the Green Party and those kind of wider systemic issues. And as I said, I'd always come from a social justice angle, but it wasn't until someone joined up for me that environmental justice and social justice are two sides of the same coin. And frequently where the environment is being destroyed, people aren't being paid properly, communities' rights are being trampled on. Whereas if you do protect the environment, then that's a good opportunity for good green jobs. It's an opportunity for more cohesive communities. And it's an opportunity to have a relook at what is the role of animals in our society and not even roles. What is our relationship? with these beautiful, kind, compassionate creatures? And how can we give them the same kindness in return? And I think, you know, I'd love to have an easy story and say that all snapped in at one moment and didn't. It was kind of lots of light bulb moments over a period of time where you go, actually, this is all adding up to one platform and one manifesto, which is ultimately about our relationships with each other, 
our relationships with the natural world and our relationships with wildlife and other species. And I think once that plugs in at quite a visceral level, then I would naturally argue that the Green Party is the way to go. But I would say to people, even if the Green Party isn't right for you, whatever reason, it's really important just to be involved and make sure your voice is heard. In the Green Party, what we're working on, and we have not got it perfect and we will get it wrong in places, is to really genuinely consult and to look at what are those future models of politics that really involve grassroots democracy that sometimes involves people telling, thing, telling you things you don't agree with. Now, that does not mean you change your values. It doesn't mean you change your position. It means you've got some more work to do to carry on that negotiation and work out, is it that you need to bring people to your position? Is it that your position can move nearer to where these people are but still remains in your values? And I think those conversations are all important conversations. And I think that's been missing in our politics. Like, genuine nuance and complexity about how, you know, it's not one answer fits all. But in terms of our values, like I couldn't be clearer that, you know, uh, facing the climate crisis, being pro-LGBT, being uh, pro-migrant, standing with striking workers, challenging austerity, these things are not changeable and they will never change. And I understand that means some people will not vote green. Can we talk about politics broadly, though, because I consider myself a political person. I care about the planet and our culture and and people and animals and in the environment. And when I hear people say, I don't do politics, I'm like, you don't do politics. Well, if you live in the world, you buy food, you buy clothes, you, you know, you're involved in the monetary system, you are involved in politics. Everything that we do is politics. There are people out there making decisions about you and your life, whether you like it or not. And if you're not involved, you know, there could be potentially things happening that are going against your belief systems or things that you agree with. Now, in the UK, we have a voting system and a political system, which in my opinion is deeply corrupt or deeply flawed. There is first past the post and proportional representation. Proportional representation often, well, has what it has meant is that the two major parties have played uh, past the parcel with this country for generations, back and forth, back and forth, which feel with, over what feels like forever. And the smaller parties, uh, like the Green Party, despite getting over, I think, millions of votes in, in the last general election, only received one seat, uh, I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong. Can you talk a bit about how you feel about the political system currently? Is it corrupt? It doesn't need to change? Because I, I know that there was a, a referendum about changing the political system and no one knew about it. Because if I'd known about these political systems and the difference between them, I would have voted in that referendum. It was quite a few years ago now, but I was quite shocked to hear that a, ver- a referendum actually went out and it seemed to have sort of been buried and uh, and it never it never really took took on any support. Yeah. So um, first of all, the question is totally right. Our political system is broken and 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 doesn't serve fit for purpose. Um, a party can receive 20% of the vote and get 70 or 80% of the seats under first past the post. Proportional representation does what it says on the tin. So if a party gets 5% of the votes, they get 5% of the seats. 70% of the votes, 70% of the seats. So the seats directly represent what people actually vote for. It is important to point out that even under the broken first past the post system, though, the Green Party have demonstrated, at least at local elections, we can and do win. So if we just look at the last uh, four or five years themselves, we've over quadrupled our number of seats. And in fact, since the last general election, we've over doubled our number of councillors. Now, councillors aren't national representation, that is true. But I'd still argue that councillors are really important for your local services, things like youth services, bins, local transport. And actually also some of the discussions we've been having around the food systems. This is going to be a lot about where is local food sourced? How is it sustainable? Who's it coming from? A lot of those things can be worked out at the local council level. And I think when we look at these things in the future, having more green representation at local council level is going to be crucial to make sure these things are happening at the local level. But it is also true that um, problems of climate 
are global problems and require global solutions, and that has to involve national representation. At the next general election, the Green Party, rather than try and win hundreds of seats and just come away with one, we've decided to really target four seats. Now, if someone could say, what is the difference is four MPs going to do in Parliament? But when you see our one MP, who's Caroline Lucas, she has been incredible in making sure that she's getting a lot of these conversations on the agenda, and she holds the Prime Minister to account. Very often, she might have four or five meetings that are all programmed at the same time, and she can only go to one of them. She has to pick the most urgent. Having four MPs means we could have four principled, compassionate, kind people standing up for green politics who can go to all of those meetings and make sure all of those things are represented in the House of Commons. So that's the first thing I'd say. It's a really exciting moment for the Green Party going into this general election because I think we've got the right strategy. And to get four MPs is an argument then for proportional representation. We'd be making that argument that the voting system needs changing. Labour now support proportional representation in terms of their party membership. But the problem is, even though they all voted on it, Keir Starmer said, no, we're sticking with first past the post. Now, why is he doing that? It comes back to an earlier answer I said, under first past the post, if it is unlikely that a seat is going to change hands, that strengthens the power of the oil and gas industry. It strengthens the power of the meat industry because they know exactly who to plow their money into their campaign because they know for almost for certain that person will retain the seat. So it's not to say corruption doesn't go under, under, you know, under proportional systems. There's lots of countries in the world that are proportional that still have problems with political lobbying. But first past the post absolutely amplifies these problems and means you just can't deal with these problems until you've changed the voting system. In terms of the referendum in 2011, that's an interesting one, because the referendum wasn't actually on proportional representation. It's often misquoted that it was but it was actually to change the voting system to an alternative voting system. It's literally called AV. And actually, that system isn't great either. I'd say it's better than first past the post, but it was a pretty awful compromise. So when people say <laughs> right. we've had a referendum on proportional representation in this country, that's not we quite haven't. true. Um, <laughs> we need to have, you know, we need to move towards proportional representation. I actually don't think we need a referendum. We need to convince the Labour Party that they should put it in their manifesto. And then I think at the next election, it's looking likely we'll get a Labour government. It might be that they're in coalition, possibly with the Liberal Democrats and possibly with the Green Party if we pick up our seats. We'd make sure that an absolute red line in any coalition negotiations was a move towards proportional representation. So we can get this changed. But what won't change it is if people keep voting for the Labour Party because they think we just need to get the Tories out, but don't recognise the problem that a Labour Party who are not committed to a progressive platform and not committed to a change in voting system just means we'll have a one-term Labour Party that then goes back to another 10, 15 years of Conservatives and we're stuck in this perpetual cycle. We need to do something different. And the difference is there. People just need to vote for it. Mm, absolutely. Well, my next question was going to be, what can individuals do to support the Green Party? Because I know a lot of vegans like myself uh, do vote. I vote green and always have. But then I'm frustrated by the lack of movement. But what you're saying, really, what I'm hearing from you is it's just it, it's just going to require more more pens on paper, <laughs> more for pencils, sorry, on paper. That's how we vote. It's about showing up and showing support at your local elections, but also on the national elections as well, and really showing support because obviously this strategic voting, which is what you referred to, is not something that we should keep leaning on forever because it will backfire eventually. Um, I'd add one other thing to that as well, and this is partly self-critical on the Green Party. It's not hugely so because things are very busy and there's a million and one things to do. But I don't feel like our, we have an internal movement called Greens for Animal Protection that are entirely devoted to the issues we're talking about and imagine the issues that be dear to your heart. Because they're not the biggest group in the world, they don't always get the biggest voice at our party conferences. Now, our party policy is all decided by one member, one vote. 
So if someone joined the Green Party today or tomorrow morning and they wanted to put a proposal forward for a party policy, they would have to get about 20 people across the country to sign it to say, yes, we think this should be party policy. And then at our party conference that happens once or twice a year, the motion is read out. And then it's a straight vote between all the party membership, whether something goes in our party policy or not. Now, you will know that there are people who are environmentalists who have been environmentalists since the 1960s, 1970s. I don't knock the work that they've done, but they don't see veganism or a move towards plant-based as vital as I do, and I imagine as you do. Now, that's not to say they're actively blocking it, so there's not some sort of conspiracy theory here. But it is to say that the importance hasn't been placed on it that I would like to see placed on it. Now, I'm doing my bit to change that. You know, I'm a spokesperson for the party, and I make sure that I talk about animal rights issues. But ultimately, to make sure that our party policy is even stronger, the best thing someone who is vegan or at least plant-based sympathetic could do, I think, to inform party policy would be to join the Green Party, to get involved with the policymaking process, to turn up at conference, whether in person or remotely, and to get those policies passed, because that ultimately makes our manifesto. And our manifesto also influences the other parties' manifestos. If you want to see the Labour Party's manifesto in five, ten years' time, you can usually look at what our manifesto is right now, because they usually do get there, but it just takes them a while to kind of get with the programme, whereas I'd say we're a lot bolder. But we're still not bold enough. And I'm, I'm going to be honest about that. We can always be bolder. And we will only be bolder by having bold voices who make those arguments based on evidence, based on science from within the party and keep pushing those arguments forward. So joining the Green Party and getting involved with Greens for Animal Protection, I think, is a real tangible difference that people can make. And I understand that those involved with activism have lots of competing priorities, going on protests, making podcasts, uh, writing magazine articles, speaking to friends and colleagues. All those things are important. So it's not saying neglect any of those. But if people do have capacity, I would say getting involved is a really helpful, useful thing to do. And I'd appreciate it too. Mm, absolutely. And you can find out the, the Green Party's policies on animal rights on their website. If you just Google Green Party animal rights policy, and it's AR100 through to 433 or something like that. And you can see all the details on that there, which is super interesting. Let's talk about the mayor of London. So am I right in knowing that you wrote an open letter to the mayor of London, urging him to make a veganism more accessible in our city? Why did you write this letter? And did you get a response? Yeah. So just rewinding for 30 seconds, as well as being deputy leader of the Green Party, I have an elected role, which is in London. I'm an assembly member. For those who don't know what an assembly member is, we're essentially London's government. So there are 25 of us that are employed to look out for Londoners and to scrutinise the mayor. That's the key part of our policy is to create recommendations or ask the mayor, why is, he, why is he making certain decisions? Why is he not making other decisions? There's a brilliant organisation called Plant-Based Treaty who have been doing brilliant work across the country around getting councils to sign up to a plant-based treaty. It has some pretty moderate, reasonable asks. These are things like making sure that plant-based food is the default within organisations that are public buildings and use public money, um, and also other asks around education and awareness around plant-based food. So to join the dots was pretty obvious, to write to the mayor and to say, would you endorse the plant-based treaty and would you make moves to make uh, London a plant-based city? Now, to be fair, there's lots of restaurants in London that the mayor has no control over. So we could have a conversation further down the line about how could he influence private restaurants to make plant-based food. But to be really clear, this was about things that are much more in his power. This are things like he's in charge of the London Fire Brigade. He's in charge of the Metropolitan Police. He's in charge of lots of public buildings that are involved around councils and, and connections to that. So if we're doing public events, I'd like to see plant-based food. So I wrote a letter to him asking for all of these things. He did respond. His response was pretty disappointing. 
although he recognized what I was saying about the carbon emissions within food and talked about the need to reduce this to get to net zero by 2030, he then said that the plant-based treaty was asking him to do things that were not in his powers. And so he wasn't going to sign up to something that involved things he couldn't do. Now, Is that true? <laughs> you could say that's an appropriate response, but there's some truth to it. But there are plenty of other things uh, where he has signed up to, so an example, he signed up to a, a non-fossil fuel proliferation treaty and non-nuclear proliferation. So he's signed up to lots of treaties in the past that are actually international treaties, but he's recognised that the role that London can play in that. And sometimes signing up is simply symbolic. He, as mayor of London, is saying, this is something I care about and we're getting involved. He's spoken this week on Israel and Palestine. I support the fact that he's speaking out about that. But you could also argue as London mayor, his actual power to do anything about the Middle Eastern conflict is limited. That's something that needs to come from the foreign secretary. But he still recognises that he's the mayor of London and it's important that, that you speak up. So that was, I think, pretty clear behind the spirit of plant-based treaty, that even if you can't directly do these things, signing up to it is about saying these are the things that you recognise. Anyway, we're not going to be defeated. What I'm planning to do now is to work with other colleagues from other parties across the assembly and look at what is exactly in the mayor's power and then ask him to sign up to those much more granular things. So that's as basic as we have a canteen I'm speaking to you from City Hall. It's really clear to me that whatever is sold in the canteen, at the very least, the plant-based option should be the first option on the menu. It should be in bigger font and bigger print and should be the most attractive option. I heard about lots of research coming out of hospitals recently that show that if you do make the plant-based option the biggest option in terms of the, the font size, it sounds silly, but there's quite clear stats that the correlation that then gets picked a lot more. My boyfriend works in a palliative care hospice, uh, working with uh, people who are dying. They have a canteen there. They often make sure that the plant-based option is the first option that's on the menu, and plant-based food sells meat-based products two to one within that hospice. So there's clear models of how this can work, and it's disappointing that I kind of need to keep chivying the mayor along with this because I wish he would just grab the agenda. But ultimately, if he's not willing to show that that leadership, then that is the role of me being elected to do there is to keep pushing him to that position. And I won't give up until we get there. So watch this space is partly the answer there. We keep chipping away at it and we will eventually get him there. I'm interested in like commentary from politicians and their opinions and views on plant-based and vegan because there's a lot of mockery that goes on especially in politics when it comes to vegans. Cyrilla Braverman has referred to people who, who are vegans really as guardian reading, tofu munching, wokarati, which I thought was hilarious. And I actually made a t-shirt about it because <laughs> just, just, there's this mockery of people that are doing good for the environment. There's a mockery of people who care about animals. What is going on here? And then obviously we had Therese Coffey uh, at her speech at the Tory party conference, standing up and saying fake meat might be okay for astronauts, but she's not going to tell other people not to eat meat. And of course, we mentioned the, the prime minister saying, whilst well, I think he was in a slaughterhouse once talking about not telling people not to eat meat. What is going on in the minds of these politicians? Is this just point scoring? Well, I think there's a couple of things here. One is about, you know, natural leadership. Um, I had an event recently um, in City Hall. And one of the things that I did around the catering was just make sure all the catering was was plant based. That feels like that's not particularly controversial. And actually, no one mentioned it whatsoever. It just seemed quite natural to people. And those people who really needed to, you know, to have meat for, for whatever reason or felt like, you know, could go home and have that meat. So I think that's one example of of where actually just making decisions about the catering we have could really make the change. But to, to, to answer your more recent question, I think this runs throughout everything this Conservative government does. We've had 13 years of Conservative austerity. 
They have stripped public services. They have broken the country. And I feel like they're out of ideas, they're out of touch, and they're out of time. And so the best thing they can do at the moment is to distract, and that's to try and create culture wars or woke wars. So migration is a typical example of this. We know that people have legitimate concerns about migration, whether that's are there enough homes, can they get a GP service, is transport too overcrowded? But the issues here are not migrants. The issue here is underinvestment. And the answer there is to invest and to make sure we're taxing the wealthy and redistributing that money to make sure we're investing in public service. And it comes exactly the same to this argument around plant-based food. The science and the expertise now is pretty clear. And what the government could do is engage with this in an adult and sensible way, in the same way that Mayor Eric Adams is doing in New York, who has created you know, a plant-based city. Uh, Jacinda Ardern is doing in New Zealand, where she's having some of these conversations too. And even Joe Biden in America, you know, not the most progressive, radical of politicians, but actually is moving the dial in the right direction slowly. These options are all there, but the government are actively choosing not to do these options. And they're going instead through the same methodology and idea they did through Brexit, and the same methodology and idea they do through everything else, which is to try and mock people, to create disinformation, and to just try and appeal to to a right-wing tabloid press. The good news is I think it's not working. I think it did work for a while, but I think most of the public are just tired. The joke isn't funny anymore, and I think they're ready for change. I really hope you're right. I really hope people are waking up and seeing the truth because, you know, our prime minister standing up and essentially erasing trans people at the Tory party conference, you've got Therese Coffey joking and making fun and mocking plant-based meats, which are a solution to reducing our environmental footprint. They are, they can be tasty and delicious. And all the misinformation out there that suggests that they are unhealthy or dangerous or full of nasty chemicals is false. Obviously, there's nuance to that. We shouldn't all be eating vegan junk food every day because, you know, we're going to have health issues just like if we're animal products. But, you know, these people are no longer leaders because all they do is tell us how they're going to improve things and how if we vote for them, they're going to fix the problem. Well, as you said, they've been in power for 13 plus years and they have not fixed the problem they've continued to cut public services to the bone and we have not seen any improvements and you know there's like four and a half million children living in food poverty in this country maybe even more now that's a statistic from a few years ago you know with with a cost of living crisis it could be it must be it's probably much much worse i just don't understand how these people can get up in the morning look themselves in the mirror and continue to behave in the way that they do. The leadership are just a dereliction of duty in every sense of the word. And I, I'm not ashamed to say I'm looking forward to seeing the back of them because there's so many people suffering in our country and we need to see a world where people, animals and planet are put uh, as a priority. You know, politicians work for us. Uh, the country we live in today with the way politicians change the laws with the Public Order Act, it feels like we're starting to move and slip into some kind of dystopian totalitarian state. We're not quite North Korea, but things creep up on you. Countries change and leadership changes without even realizing it. One day people are have their 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 their, their freedoms and the next minute they're being curtailed and chain and change. And I'm not suggesting we're going to end up like, you know, the fictional country of Gilead in Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> Hope not. But uh, you know, we have to be careful. We have to be mindful and aware and hold our government accountable. And I think one thing that a lot of um, young people might not know about and a lot of just the general public might be is that you can go and see your politician. You can write to them. You can phone them. You can talk to them. You can lobby your politicians and you can make a noise. You don't necessarily have to be involved in direct action. You don't necessarily have to throw yourself in the firing line and get arrested. You can make your voice known. And when enough people, when you mass mobilize, you know, you can create change. And I think that's something that the British public seem to have been 
coerced is the wrong word, but sort of conditioned into doing what they're told, staying where you are, not speaking up, not rocking the boat. And I think now is the time to do the exact opposite. Now is the time to rock the boat, to have your voice known and to stand up for what you believe in and write those letters and make those phone calls. Can I jump in there with three three quick three quick things? Because I think you're, you're spot on with all of those things. Uh, they're three separate things. But number one, I'm always appreciative when I hear people talk about trans rights. And I think this is like a key area where the culture war, the government have just picked, you know, I think it's trans people are less than 1% of the population. Yet the amount of focus and vitriol and toxic narratives towards them both in the media and from right-wing politicians is disgusting and i think for those of us who consider ourselves progressive and i would say veganism should include progressiveness within it they're different things but for me they're very interrelated i think we have a responsibility to always make sure that we're, we're speaking up both for women's rights and for trans people and those things are not mutually exclusive although sometimes they get presented as such and the second thing is i was at a child poverty summit yesterday talking about poverty figures. And it's just fascinating that during the pandemic, the government made the right decision to give a £25 universal credit uplift to, to families who were, who were suffering. Unsurprisingly, poverty rates went down because they were being supported and given money. As soon as the kind of main bulk of the pandemic had gone, they took away that £25 and poverty rates shot up again. I mean, this isn't rocket science. You're taking people's away people's money. But I think it's really clear that these are the results of political choices. And the biggest choice that we could make right now to end child poverty is to lift the child benefit cap. So this is a cap that says after two children, families get no welfare and no support. And both Labour and the Conservatives both support this child benefit cap. Yet one in four children are living in child poverty. And this would be a key way of removing that. Now, sometimes people say, well, if people can't afford it, they shouldn't have more children. I think there's a whole issue with that framing anyway. But my biggest issue with that framing is it's not the child's fault. Why are you going to allow a child to live in poverty and to suffer based on the, the decisions of other people? I mean, it makes no sense at all. So again, I think poverty is really important. It's really cruel and it's inhumane. And the third thing is about um, junk food. So confession, maybe I shouldn't confess this in public, but I'm not a healthy vegan. Like I'm, I'm always eating in junk food vegan places. I drink a lot of fuel, which is highly processed, although the fuel conversation is still out there. Um, but I perfectly recognize that um, actually my diet could be a lot better in terms of my vegan plant-based food. But um, there are opportunities here as well that like growing your own vegetables and growing your own food is both an amazing way to get back to communities, being able to have cheaper food because it's locally sourced, children and adults literally being able to put their hands in the soil and get that tangible experience of where food comes from. And also to understand that when people are eating meat or drinking milk, that animals are not some abstract idea. That food just doesn't end up packaged in a supermarket. But actually, there is a joining of coherency and logic about where our food is coming from. And then people can make the choices they want to make, but they will be informed choices rather than the choices that are given to us at schools where very often this information is just swept into a back room and, and people don't know what, what what's going on. I think all of those things join up. And I think particularly in a cost of living crisis, for communities to be able to grow their own food is a very obvious way of making cheaper food. It always frustrates me when people go, oh, veganism's middle class, it's expensive. Yes, it often can be. If you go to a vegan restaurant, it outrages me too, that you often end up paying a lot more than if you didn't go to a vegan restaurant. And nothing bothers me more than when you go in a coffee shop and you get charged extra for oat milk or soya milk. So all of those things need to change. But also at the root cause of it, vegetables, healthy plant-based food can actually be a lot cheaper way of making a meal than the alternatives. And I think it's important those, those differences are understood. Mm, absolutely. Well, one thing that's 
fascinating, which a lot of you may not know about, are subsidies. If you go into the supermarket and you pick up a pack of pig bacon and you look at the um, the cost per kilogram, pig bacon is about six pounds, British pounds per kilogram of weight. You go over to the vegan aisle and you pick up a pack of vegan bacon and it is 29 pounds per kilogram. We are questioning why are these vegan meat brands going out of business? They're going out of business because people cannot afford them because they are way too expensive for the, the volume of food that you get. One of the biggest reasons why meat is so cheap and affordable is because it's so heavily subsidized. Can you explain to the listeners, firstly, what are subsidies, meat subsidies? Why do they happen? And why does the government continue to subsidize an industry which is absolutely destroying our countryside? Yeah, so subsidies are essentially mainly tax breaks. So in the same way that that um, an individual might get a tax break, for instance, we don't pay any tax. I think it's on the first 11,500. It might be a little bit more now, 12,000 pounds. Everyone gets that free from tax. A subsidy is essentially saying to a big corporate company or a small business, for these projects, we're going to eliminate tax. So essentially, the UK government is going to take the hit on that. Now, that happens all the time for things like aviation. That's how they keep flights cheaper, whereas it doesn't happen for trains. So if you want to travel from London to Manchester, you will pay an absolute fortune in that train ticket. I didn't know that. Yeah, if you want to fly from London to Manchester, it's a lot cheaper because the the government is subsidizing it. So they're making an active choice to help the aviation companies, despite the fact we live in a climate crisis and we need to discourage people from flying. That's mind-blowing. And that we need people to get on public transport. Yeah, So and it's the exact same principle with, with meat-based diet. And actually, this is an example, too, of where... Um, National government should absolutely stop subsidizing the meat industry and start subsidizing people to make healthier, better choices that are better for health, better for the climate and better for our planet. But also local government, so people like mayors or councils, could also make better procurement decisions. So if they're um, allowing a restaurant or a um, public building to be in a public space, they could give money off uh, the rent or give money off your initial kind of planning costs if that um, building is serving public good. And I would argue if they're a, a plant-based restaurant or they're doing work around animal rights, then that is a public good and ultimately should be subsidized by the council or by the government. So all of these decisions can be made by people in power, by who we give subsidies to. And um, it is harder for local government, so I don't want to be disingenuous to the mayor. It's much easier if you're national government, you hold all the levers. But it's also not true for local council leaders or city mayors to say, we don't have any power over this. There's clever ways they can use levers to make sure that they're nudging those decisions. Um, and nudge is probably the best phrase for that there, because you're not banning anything outright. But what you are doing is making it much easier for people to be able to make the ethically conscious and environmentally conscious decision rather than actively promoting and actively subsidizing something that I would argue is both cruel and inhumane, but also is bad for our planet. Do you think we'll ever see an end to meat subsidies? Yeah, I do think we will. It's interesting. I didn't have to pause to think about that. I'm always nervous about saying I'm inspired by young people because it's something that politicians say that I think is a way of shifting responsibility as if to say, oh, you don't need to worry about me doing this because the young people are going to come along and sort it out. Rather than being inspired by young people, what I want to see is young people in positions where they can be elected into positions of power. So rather than be inspired by them, I can actually see them make change. Now, so I'm not being ageist, I should also say, and you'll know these people too, Robbie. So there's some older people who are retirees who are amazing. They've been working in the vegan and plant-based movement for a long time and they're kicking ass and they're amazing. And their contribution should also be recognized. But I think it is also fair to say disproportionately so. When I speak to young people, they get this. Like they can see the writing is on the wall. They're disgusted by what is happening uh, around animal agriculture and in abattoirs and, and animal factories. And they want to see change. And I just think 
the rate of speed that we're seeing things change at is accelerating. Is it going fast enough? No, not nearly enough. I mean, I don't know the stat, but the amount of animals that have been murdered just in the time that we've been chatting about this podcast is staggering. And I know that because I, I went to see a, a talk at Vegan Camp Out by Weaver Free, where they gave the stat for they finished an hour's talk and they said X amount of animals have been murdered during this talk. And it was just that real gut punch of we're talking, but animals are being murdered every second every minute so are we moving fast enough no we're absolutely not but also that isn't to paralyze us into thinking we can't make change because change is happening these conversations are happening we're seeing vegan and plant-based businesses popping up all over the place you'll remember a time when you said you're vegan and you turn up to a restaurant or with a group of friends and you were the awkward one or that was going to create difficulties that can still happen and you've got to navigate it but i would say the majority of the time People often ask, are there any vegans? And and that's great that, that that conversation is tipping in that way. Obviously, I want to see that conversation tip as quickly as possible to, is there anyone in this group who needs meat or dairy for any particular reason? And there's a whole conversation about whether anyone needs it. I'm not there to judge on that conversation, but to have vegan or plant-based as the first default option feels like somewhere we've got to get too quick. But I do feel like we'll get there. And I think as soon as we're there or on the route to there, ending meat subsidies it will seem absurd that we're subsidizing me. Well, transition is the word that we talk about a lot. And transformation uh, is what my friends over at Mercy for Animals in the US are working on. Check out the transformation project. If you just Google that and then add plant-based news, we've got an article about it. But this is a the idea that the farming system as it currently is, is trapped in a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. They have a romantic view of farming and a lot of farmers struggle deeply. They are not making enough money. They, they have backbreaking hours and a lot of them don't want to be killing animals like they do, but they've been trapped in a system where they obviously in, might be in huge amounts of debt or it's a transgenerational thing where they're doing what their parents did and their parents' parents did. But there are farmers in the United States today who had giant chicken sheds uh, where they were making very little money and they converted them into giant barns to grow mushrooms or grow hemp. And they're making three, four, five times the amount of money. Is there a movement in the UK to support a transition to a plant-based food system? Because it's all very well saying, let's do, that's because I love the plant-based treaty. I'm a part of it. I'm a media ambassador and I'm always talking about it. But it's one thing to talk. It's another thing to actually facilitate and provide the funding, the knowledge, the guidance, the support for farmers farmers to make that transition. Is that happening? And if it's not, uh, yeah, what do you think we will get there? <laughs> it's a really vital question. The first thing I can say is the Green Party, we are reaching out to farmers, whether that's through their union movements or whether that's individual farmers who happen to be in the Green Party, who have friends who aren't in the Green Party and want to talk about their concerns. Then I think those conversations have to happen. Now, I know some people might balk at that and go, well, that's talking to the enemy. I totally neglect that narrative completely. Um, as well as caring about animal rights, we do need to also care about human rights and workers' rights. These things are totally compatible. Yes, there's creative tension there. So I'm not going to pretend for a second these conversations are going to be easy. But I do know that to have any kind of livable future, both for people and for animals, we've got to navigate these conversations. And that can only happen through open dialogue, through transparency, through working out what exactly the barriers are and starting to navigate that. Now, some of those barriers will be disinformation, will be lack of transparency, will be political motives, as we've discussed throughout this podcast, really. Those ones, we've just got to beat them. There's no negotiation to be done there. We've just got to have better arguments that are repeated frequently so that people know that the moral, just and truth is on our side. And as far as misinformation goes, the best thing we can do is beat it with 
information. And so to that, I give absolute props to organizations like Plant-Based News and similar organizations who are out there every single day, making sure that the truth is out there, that things are properly sourced and referenced, because anytime that anything gets anything wrong or it's not entirely accurate, that does damage to our movement. So we've got to make sure that whatever we're talking about is grounded in expertise, thought, and is really joined up. And I think uh, Plant-Based News do that really, really well. So it's really important we, we carry on that work. There's a second part to that, though, which isn't about just beating people. This is about where people are genuinely well-intentioned. They're worried about their livelihoods. They don't necessarily have the information about what animal agriculture is doing, or they've not made the emotional connection to what animal agriculture is doing, because we're coming up against decades, generations of things being done in a certain way, and to shift feels like a real change. I think one obvious place where this work is being done is around aviation. So it's not that we need to shut down all airports, but we do absolutely need to reduce the amount of flying that goes on and the amount of empty airlines that that are flying both from the UK and, and from other countries. To do that will mean that people lose their jobs. And we have to be honest about that. In doing that, it's absolutely vital that we make sure there are other jobs they go to. And the good news is around tackling the climate crisis, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of jobs that can be created, making sure that we have good unionized jobs that are well-paid, good working conditions that serve communities in good ways. I won't go off on too much of the other tangent, but insulating homes is one example. That is a triple win. It reduces bills, it lowers emissions, and it creates jobs. Insulating every home in Britain that needs it is something vital to do, but also it's a beautiful opportunity to create good green jobs that people can go into. And so that work is being done in the aviation industry. There's an amazing report been done that was called A Green New Deal for Gatwick, which was looking at engaging with people who work in Gatwick about what are the apprenticeship schemes, the training schemes they need to go on now to reskill, to upskill, to change jobs so they can have good job security because it's no good closing down industries and then saying to people, we'll have a job for you in five, 10 years time. It has to be a smooth transition. So we've got to make sure those transitions are happening. We need to take that exact model to agriculture and we need to look at working with farmers because actually farmers have a really important role to play in the future of tackling the climate crisis. No one knows the land and the communities better than the farmers themselves. And ultimately, we will need their expertise, their connections, their guidance in how to make this transition happen. And yes, there will be disagreements along the way. Some of those disagreements will be big disagreements, but it's better we're having those conversations now. So we're really clear about the ways we can get around those disagreements and compromises and negotiations that can be made. I don't think compromise has to be a dirty word, but ultimately through all of those negotiations, we need to make sure that protecting the planet and protecting animals is a non-negotiable and we're always standing up for for their rights and, and the best possible settlement and negotiation for them. Questions that we always experience as vegan vegans, you know, if you stop killing animals, what happens to all those animals that exist already? Are you going to kill them all? Well, of course we're not. And animals should not exist just to be meat. But there is a genuine question about in that interim transition, what happens to, to all of those animals? And all of those conversations are conversations that I think there are answers to. But we need to make sure we're working alongside farmers rather than seeing them as the enemy to, to negotiate how that might happen. Mm, 100%. We need them. Farmers are our future. So final question, which is more kind of like a completely left field question, personal question for me. In your spaces in politics and stuff, what's the word on the street regarding AI? Because it's uh, quietly been bubbling away in the background over the last year and a half, maybe two years, and suddenly it is now everywhere. It's in every piece of software. We have image generation tools that can create images that are super hyper real. Is there a concern in the Green Party or is there conversations in the Green Party about the threat of AI for misinformation and disinformation specifically to destabilize? 
destabilize our society and cause absolute chaos. People say AI is going to destroy us. My view is AI is not going to destroy us. We will use AI to potentially destroy ourselves. <laughs> Something to laugh at, I suppose, but it's kind of funny because it's like we've made this technology and it's a bit like a child with a some kind of explosive weapon. We don't really understand, or maybe even Pandora's box is probably a better analogy. But any word on the street regarding AI and what does the Green Party think of it? Yeah, I think three quick things. And you're right, it's been quietly bubbling, but actually my inbox in the last month or two has popped up a lot more with artificial intelligence. So I think it's a lot more on people's radar and I've noticed I've been asked about it. I think the first thing is we need to define exactly what we mean by artificial intelligence. So a lot of people are talking about chat GPT at the moment. Chat GPT isn't really artificial intelligence. It's much more like a plagiarism tool. And that's not necessarily passing judgment on it, but I think it is often misunderstood what what AI is. So I think that's the first thing is to legislate on things and to make decisions about guidance. It's really important we have definitions for things. And I would say the first thing, you know, if I was in national government, I'd want to do is start defining what exactly do we mean by artificial intelligence? What exactly are we concerned about with it? And also what are the opportunities there? And I think that's an important conversation we need to have. I think the second thing is I'm really concerned about deep fakes. I think just last week or two, there was a deep fake of Keir Starmer that started to go around on Twitter or X, uh, as it's known. Of course, that's really worrying. I'm already really worried about this happened just last night, uh, again, with Israel and, and Palestine, where Israel said that a rocket was, well, we know that a rocket destroyed a hospital in Gaza. Israel were blamed for it. Israel immediately said, actually, this was a, a Hamas rocket that, that exploded within the hospital. We still don't know exactly what happened. And it's it's really concerning if we can't even have arguments and debates based on an understanding of what the truth is. So that's been a trend running throughout society, but it feels like it's going to be amplified and even more perpetuated by deep fakes and artificial intelligence. So we've got to get on top of this. So the final thing I'd say is, am I concerned? I think there's a moment where, so one thing I'm always advocating for is a universal basic income. This is the idea that every single citizen gets a sum of money each month that pays for basic basic existence, things like rent, food, transport. The point of this is to lift everyone out of poverty. Martin Luther King in the 70s said this could literally eradicate poverty. And we fund this through scrapping the universal credit system so that we're getting rid of sanctions and the idea of an undeserving and deserving poor, and ultimately by making sure we're taxing the wealthy. It's really important that people with disabilities are better off under a universal basic income. So there's lots of tweaks that would need to happen to make sure that everyone who is vulnerable is ultimately better off. But I think the reason why I've been advocating for that is one, to give people the freedom to be able to do what they want with their life, but two, to recognize that a lot of jobs are not going to exist anymore in society because we are going to be able to automate them and there's going to be artificial intelligence. Now, that's an opportunity in terms of people can do jobs that are more creative, that involve more connections with their community. But also there's a real fear there that already we live in a society that's feeling increasingly fragmented. And if people aren't having human contact, then that can fragment communities. So again, just to come back directly to artificial intelligence, I think there's some huge opportunities here, whether it's around pushing politics or pushing measures for promoting plant-based food or promoting educational training. Like There are opportunities here to be able to accelerate change and accelerate progress. But ultimately, it's a little bit like any story that people are being told. It depends on the storyteller. And what concerns me are, who are the people who are programming the artificial intelligence? And if they have the same biases that we have as humans, whether they're racial biases, whether they're sexist biases, homophobic, transphobic biases, then those biases will ultimately be represented in the artificial intelligence too. So I think that's a wider problem for society, but also a wider problem uh, in tackling artificial intelligence. But I'm also wary of just being scared or worried about things because they're new. You know, just a few years ago, the idea of doing this podcast over the internet 
it's given you the opportunity to be a publisher in a way that would have been unthinkable 20 years ago. And I think that's really exciting that the conversations we can now have and the fact that we can all access each other much better and much quicker. All of these things are opportunities, but they come with pitfalls too. I've given a very politician answer there, which is to sit entirely on the fence. (laughs) But I guess ultimately what I'm saying is we need more information and we need to make fact-based decisions. But I absolutely accept the premise of the question, which is this is urgent. It's not coming around the corner. It's happening right now. So we've got to get on with this and we need experts in this space speaking clearly. Amazing. Before I let you go, I always like to ask my guests this final question. If you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig, you're not going to eat the pig. Don't worry. I know you're a vegan. If I could give you one vegan dish, a music artist and a book, what would you take with you? Without a doubt, spaghetti bolognese, but using the, actually, I won't promote an individual company, but using one of those, um, the mints, which is delicious. Um, I went to see Beverly Knight in concert last night and she was absolutely incredible. So it would be Beverly Knight. You've really put me on the spot here. I think it would be The Magus by John Fowles, which is a long fiction book. And I'm just picking a long one because you get to the end and once you've read it to the pig, the pig might want you to reread it. (laughs) The pig won't get bored that way. Thanks for joining us on the PBN podcast, Mr. Zach Polanski. What a pleasure to hear a bit of your story. Uh, It's amazing to hear about politics. I'm something I'm really passionate about, but it's an interesting world and looking forward to episode two already. Thanks so much for having me and thanks for everything you're doing too. You've been listening to the Plant-Based News Podcast with me, Robbie Lockie. Our team also includes Phil Marriott Polly Foreman Daryl Savchuk Triska Taylor Hope you enjoyed that episode. We'll be back next time with more food, fashion, veganism, animals and everything in between.